0: Uh, Welcome to the session on HIV and the faith community. And um, I was just looking at the program. I got in very, very early this morning, and I have no idea how that description got attached to this session. Uh, That's not the one I submitted, so I apologize for that. Uh, I need to make uh, one uh, disclaimer that although I am an employee of the CDC, Today, my comments and reflections do not necessarily reflect those of the CDC. Uh, and also, um, I asked about how many folks to prepare for for this session because I have uh, you actually only have one fifth of the handout that I prepare for this kind of a session. There is on the uh, global missions health. Uh, conference website attached to my name, the full 25-page handout. Uh, and not, not knowing how many people to prepare for, um, <clears throat> I didn't think I wanted to do the whole 25 pages, to copy the whole 25 pages, but um, I will be making reference to those, and I pulled out some of the critical pages from that handout. So if you go to the site Uh, you can pull it up, and if for some reason you can't, just send me an email and I'll send it to you directly. And the purpose of that handout uh, is really uh, not even to – you can't in 50 minutes address the depth and breadth of issues as it relates to this particular topic, but it's really designed – and really this uh, workshop is really designed for us to hopefully think about some of the critical issues as it relates to HIV – and what our particular role as people of faith and uh, faith communities and churches could be so uh even in uh that material uh hopefully it will be thoughtful uh thought provoking for you the other thing that i hope this session will be i'm going to produce some uh present some what i consider to be some of the key concepts and principles and then uh, but i really would like this to be a dialogue uh, between us, and also to hear from some of you who are already working in HIV, and uh, hear some of the things that you have done, so that we can share share those things together. Let's just open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this great conference and for being able to be here, for getting everybody here safely, and we thank you for all that we are learning, all that we have to learn, and. Uh, mostly uh, all that we're learning about your heart and what your heart is for people and health and missions. And we submit this time in ourselves to you and ask your presence to be with us and to enlighten us. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Uh, Just as a point of background, I am a health educator by training. Um, I'm a retired college professor of almost 20 years, and then uh, six and a half years uh, ago was led uh, to the CDC uh, through a fellowship program, really. Um, I had not worked in topic-specific health issues for many years, really since my first job as a health educator, Uh, and since there are probably medical people here, I actually uh, graduated pre-med, was was biology, graduated pre-med, and somewhere, still don't remember how, my senior year stumbled across the area of public health, community health, health education. And the more I read about that field, it actually fit the picture in my head of what I envisioned myself doing as a physician, even though I had no clue about what that was going to be. So much to my father's dismay, I uh, graduated pre-med but went straight into a health education, community health program, and got both a master's and doctorate in that field. And almost 30 years later, I would not be anywhere else uh, in terms of – and that's really my focus in relation to this topic and to this issue – uh, most of my work has largely been in working with communities, community groups, and uh, individuals, really helping them to think about and to solve their own health problems. Uh, if you follow Paulo Freire's work, uh, he says that people really already have the answers to their health issues, not just health issues, but issues in general. What they really need from professionals is to help them to facilitate the answers that they need. So they don't need us necessarily to tell them everything that's wrong with them. And this microphone, I can tell, is going to be a pain in the neck, so I'm going to let it just let it ride. So that is my approach and philosophy um, as I talk about this issue um, and really, even though we're talking about HIV, for me we're really talking about the faith community's involvement in health as ministry. And if you're involved in public health in general and health education in general, you know that it's really all about a program and what we can, what health departments and what universities and their research their great and massive research studies and clinical trials and randomized controlled trials, what they can get people to do. Um, But that's not the focus, as we know, of the church and of mission and ministry. And so even though we're talking about HIV, um, a lot of my discussion and approach here will be really thinking about the church's involvement in health as ministry with a particular focus on this issue of HIV. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on a lot of the statistics. Um, i got the, we just got the newest set of uh, slides. They're actually very nice. If you want to look at the newest surveillance data for HIV, you can go to cdc.gov and pull up the uh, combination of fact sheets and surveillance slides. It's all on the, uh, on our website. But it really um, paints a, still a very grim picture of HIV, even though things have gotten a little better. Um, not Dramatically better, but uh, somewhat better. And certainly the global issue of HIV is still uh, major. I had the great opportunity and fortune to travel to both Kenya last year and to Tanzania this summer to work with our CDC partners there on implementing some of the CDC evidence based interventions for HIV. So you can uh, go to the, our website and the first two pages of this handout list some of the current and critical information. And when I get to the, because it's a 25 page handout, I will, the ones that I've given you that I'll reference, I'll let you know when I uh, get to those. Uh, some of the more critical things for me as it relates to the global issue of HIV is that uh, is the uh, numbers of the millions of children that have been orphaned by HIV and also the fact that 50% of, it's estimated that about 50% of adults and 72% of children who are eligible for HIV treatment are not getting it. Uh, it's estimated that every 9.5 minutes someone is infected in the United States with HIV More than 11 million people, 13 years and older, living with HIV today. The greatest statistic for us is that... Sorry to interrupt, but I don't know if I read the same notes because I can't find it. No, it's not. I just... No, That you only have five pages of a 25-page handout. Yes. Yeah. No, what I'm reading from is actually on the 25-page. Yes, yes. And, yeah, there is a... For those that came in late, there... This you have an excerpt of a 25-page handout that is on the on my page on the Global Missions uh, website. Because they couldn't give me a figure on how many people to prepare for, I didn't feel it was a good stewardship to copy 25 pages. Um, some of the critical information as it relates to uh, our recent. Uh, issues in relation to the epidemic is that although the numbers, the new numbers, new infections have remained steady for the last couple years and they have actually, actually have gone down a little bit, uh, for certain populations within our country, the figures have gone up even more and very dramatically, particularly among men who have sex with men, although their figures have been. Uh, little steady, particularly white men, um, but dramatic increases among black black youth, uh, African-American women, and um, interestingly enough, older people, people over the age of 50. Uh, the other dramatic statistic that has actually, and it's actually the reason that has shifted CDC's focus within the last several years is that it's estimated that of the, um, of this 1.1 million people that are living with HIV, it's estimated that 18% of them do not know their status. And it's suggested that this, fo- this folks is about, about over 200,000 people living with HIV that are really driving the epidemic so that 50% of those folks, 50% of those uh, infected with new cases of HIV come from this, this category, and hence it's one of the goals of the National HIV-AIDS Strategy that we would increase from 79% to 90% within the country people who actually know their status. And we actually are on a trajectory uh, for that, uh, it had been increased from 80% to 81.9% from 2006 to 2009. Uh, as I just mentioned, uh, there are major uh, health I- inequities in relation to this disease. Uh, gay, bisexual, and other men that have sex with men, or what we call MSM men, are more severely impacted by... HIV with white males still comprising the largest number of cases. However, the largest number of new cases of HIV are largely coming from black MSM, particularly males between the ages of 13 and 24. 95% of all people living with HIV, living with AIDS, are either MSM, African American, Latino, or uh, ID drug users. Latinos are three times more likely to live with HIV than whites. African-Americans are most grossly disproportionately impacted with HIV, being eight times more likely to be living with HIV. African-American women comprise the largest group of women. Uh, and their disease is largely coming from uh, heterosexual relationships um, with uh, them comprising the uh, largest percentage of new cases. And we already mentioned uh, youth, uh, black youth being some of the largest groups. And it's estimated that the epidemic in the African-American community actually rivals some of the sub-Saharan uh, African countries in terms of incidence and both incidence and prevalence. Um I mentioned this larger group, and I think this group, in, for me, is one of the ones that is going to get the attention of the church the most. It's one thing when we talk about MSM and ID drug users having HIV, but when Sister Susie at the church shows up with HIV um, uh, over the age of 50, it gives the disease a different picture and a different face, doesn't it? And that, in fact, is is uh, happening. Uh, new infections uh, among people 50 years and over over is about 15 percent of HIV incidents, and that has been a rapid and dramatic increase in the last several years. There also is a geographic pull for HIV, so that the states of New York, California, Texas, Florida, and and the District of Columbia. Comprise 90 percent of people with those diseases. Why that group? What's going on there? A comp- a, it's believed to be a combination of things. Uh, one is that um, obviously people are uh, the, well. Uh, well. Well. Let me backtrack. One is believed to be the issue of Viagra that has that dramatically made uh, men more able to be sexually active at an older age, and older men, many older men, particularly those that are using Viagra, are being involved with younger women and also maybe women who are more at risk for HIV. And so many of them are bringing the disease home to their wives, their girlfriends, their Friends, um, also um, older women, even though they represent women from the sexual revolution at this stage of, of age, uh, many of them that are, particularly that are becoming widowed or divorced at an older age, um, are not using protective sex as much as they could or should, and so thus exposing themselves to, to potentially to HIV. Let's see, a couple other quick statistics. As we might expect, urban areas are uh, very much affected. However, rural communities, particularly those in the south, are considered some of the uh, most at risk communities, believe it or not, for HIV. We often think of uh, diseases like this as largely being an urban issue, but 60% of all, 67% of all AIDS cases. Reported are that are reported are reported in the South, and interestingly enough, um, well, that's another aside issue. I'll come back to that a little later. Um, and that's also there are also areas that don't have a lot as many resources as as the urban areas, such as a city like New York City. Also, <coughs> this is another reason why the shift in HIV for the CDC and really the country has changed slightly is that only 45%, we mentioned the global figure, but it's true here in the United States as well, that only 45% of the 1.1 million people living with HIV or AIDS is receiving the care and treatment that they need in order to prevent them from transmitting the disease. Uh, one quick thing, and then I'll take your question. Uh, even though you know that the United States supports uh, about 15 countries through the PEPFAR program, uh, that program requires before you can be funded for an HIV AIDS uh, support from the United States the country has to submit a very detailed and strategic national plan for how they're going to eradicate HIV in their country the United States had did not have such a plan for itself until 2010 when we when the United States A national aid strategy was created, which is a comprehensive plan for addressing HIV with a particular focus on prevention, care, and research. There are all kinds of (laughs) mandates for mainly for the government uh, agencies to work together because people that have HIV not only have HIV, but they have a host of other issues that need to be serviced. And then um, there also is also our specific goals for reducing, as we said, the number of people who are unaware, the number of people patients that are actually linked to care because it was discovered that people were being diagnosed with HIV but not getting into care and treatment and staying on care and then increasing the uh decreasing the uh uh increasing I'm sorry the percentage of people with HIV that have an undetectable viral load, and that actually has become the real measure for uh, care and treatment these days. Also, if you've been following Healthy People 2020, the recent goals that have been established, there is a very specific HIV awareness objective, and the most important statistic to me and for me, certainly as a public health educator and community health educator, is that unlike probably any other disease that we have, HIV is still 100% preventable. Very few diseases that we can say that about, that it's 100% Preventable. We have done dramatic things. With uh, many countries are trying to learn from us on what we have done, how we've been able to reduce our uh, pediatric uh, AIDS cases, uh, the mother-to-child mother transmission, which has dra- dropped dramatically. All of the, let's let's take your question or comment. And please, uh, if you have a question or comment, jump in as we go along. All of this, for me. Um, raises a couple issues. All of these statistics raise a couple issues, I think, for me and for us, I think, as people of God. And the big issue uh, for us, I think, is one, just the nature of this particular disease in terms of how you get it and who gets it. And that in and of itself, for many people of faith, creates an issue. So that we're largely talking about uh, people's sexuality and sexual orientation, and in particular, um, a practice or behavior that, within the Christian and within our Christian and theological context, um, would not be considered an appropriate behavior. And so that in and of itself, I think, sets HIV apart, and of course the IV drug use as well. And also just the whole sexuality issue in general. So even those that are contracting AIDS through heterosexual means outside of a marriage context uh, present some question marks for us as people of faith. Uh, The other issue is that uh, for the host of factors that, and there, you know, you have to do a lot of reading to look at the – there's a long list of factors that may predispose people to being at more risk for getting HIV. So that, uh, for example, uh, women who um, are HIV positive, uh, which is the group that I work with the most at, uh, at the CDC in terms of uh, interventions and prevention – are at a much higher risk for issues of domestic and interpartner violence. And so being able to negotiate with a partner on practicing what we would call safe sex would be very difficult for them. Or uh, women who are in poverty uh, may be um, using uh, sexual uh, favors and requests from a boyfriend or a partner Uh, to help support their families and their children, and again, may not have the power to be able to negotiate relationships. So there's a whole list of things, not just the sexual uh, issues that are related to HIV, that cause little question marks in our minds as people of faith. And the first thing that I think we have to ask ourselves as uh, people of faith and followers of Jesus Christ is... Do we do that with other illnesses? And I would argue that we don't. We don't point at someone in their face. I call uh, uh, HIV our modern day leprosy. Uh, in another talk that I've done, uh, is I do a whole comparison of the pharisaical approach to leprosy that, Who, the, the bounds of which Jesus broke powerfully, um, to our treatment of HIV and people who are living with HIV and people who contract HIV. We don't point a finger at people who get, uh, have a heart attack because they clog their arteries. Well, maybe we do with, uh, obesity, but, uh, we don't point in their face and say, you know, you, you're a type A personality. And that helped your cholesterol to go up so high and caused your arteries to get clogged. And that's why you had a heart attack. People who, are, who, are, who have diabetes, uh, we certainly may talk about their weight as being one issue, but we don't point a finger in their face and say you're a diabetic because you're too fat, even if that, in fact, may be the case. So why is it with this particular disease, we can go down the list of diseases where we don't do that. Why is it with this particular disease that we point the finger from the perspective of pointing the finger of whether or not they deserve help? And, you know, we've developed this whole language, not only in health we've developed it in health in, you know, supporting people in a variety of ways from this concept of people being deserving of assistance, whether we're talking about health care or government subsidies or whatever, you know, there's this whole concept now of the deserving poor or deserving communities. And we have to really rethink that. Uh, One of the things, uh, one of these handouts gives a very nice graphic from the, uh, now our deceased uh, brother, great medical missionary, David Daniel Fountain, um, on this biblical worldview of health. And essentially it lets us know that really God's design for health and wholeness is for everyone. And we, there is a theological and biblical mandate from us to call people into healing, health, and wholeness Using the ministry of Jesus as our ultimate example. When you really study, and if you look at that first handout, this is just a smathering. I have uh, pages and pages. And if you're interested, I have a note there on that first uh, handout, a scriptural basis for health ministry. I have a long list of scriptures that are health-related scriptures. Um, And if you want that, Longer list, just send me an email and I'll send it to you. But when you really study Jesus' ministry of health and healing to people, um, there is no incident. I, you know, and I, If there are theologians in the room, you can correct me and point me. Uh, uh, what's, the, what's the move you would say? Point me in the right direction.
1: It's a wonderful life,
0: right, when he's uh, going out to uh, meet Donna Reed. But I have done not an exhaustive, but an extensive study and re-study of the Gospels, and in not one instance does Jesus castigate a sinner for his sin or the problem that he has come he or she has come to him with. Not once. He saved all of his generation of vipers talk for the religious folks who thought they knew everything and who thought they were the only ones that were right. As a matter of fact, Jesus' methods of healing were multiple, and sometimes it depended on the person's faith, but most of the time it didn't. Whether they believed or not, he reached out to them and reached down to them and met them where they were. We have developed a culture in our Christianity and in our faith walk to... To deal with the woman at the well with her five husbands first. And Jesus didn't start there. He asked her a very simple question, didn't he? And I say in health and medical issues in general, we're asking the wrong, we're asking people the wrong questions. Jesus has my favorite healing story is Jesus. Uh, healing the guy at the pool of Bethesda. And, you know, you've read that story a million times. You know, and the, uh, Jesus asked him, asked him a very basic and poignant question. Do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be well? And the guy came up, you know, as, as many of the folks that we work with do. He had all kinds of excuses, didn't he? Well, you know, I've been sitting here for 38 years And it's nobody to put me in the water, and other people jump before I can get my chance to jump. And Jesus didn't deal with any of that. But he told him to pick up his bed and walk. And the scriptures say this man that had been sitting for 38 years immediately got up and walked. Now, was that a miracle? Yes. Was that something in the man? Yes. A combination of both, I believe. My other favorite story, healing story, is out of the uh, the story of the four friends. Because the other thing that we have done within the context, and these, by the way, are what I believe to be some of the barriers that help us to, um, that hinder us from working effectively in particularly HIV ministry, and with HIV people, people who are living with HIV. Um, I love the story of the paralytic man that the four friends brought to Jesus, and um, they wanted him to see Jesus so badly they tore up somebody's house. You know, you probably couldn't do that today. Uh, But they were so determined... To give this man access to Jesus, and the scriptures say they dug a hole in the roof and they lowered him down in front of him. And interesting, this, I lo- the thing I love about this scripture is that instead of healing the man, Jesus forgives him. And when you actually study the scriptures that uh, in relation to Jesus' healing ministry the exact same word is used for forgiving people and healing people. And it's the word sozo. So when Jesus healed people, he forgave them. And when he forgave them, he healed them. And so this whole concept of separation of, you know, or or ministry being one thing, you know, we have the social gospel and the spiritual gospel, really was not part of Jesus' focus and ministry. And uh, that first, uh, those are some of the scriptures that are related to this concept of saving and healing people so that we as the people of God following in Jesus' footsteps are really called to bring people to wholeness no matter what their condition, no matter how they got it, no matter um, what their lifestyle, so to speak. And I believe that as we exercise that spirit of compassion and concern and ultimately action that it will bring people and call people into a relationship with Christ that will help them deal with their other issues or the issues that are most important to us in our, in our lives and in our walk. So we are called as people of faith to to bringing people, as Jesus did, into wholeness, into him. And I would say that if there's any group of people that need to be brought into a spirit and uh, life of wholeness, it would be people living with HIV. Uh, we do know that there are consequences of living what we call a neutral life. There's a nice diagram in here, for, again, from uh, Ken Bakken. Um, When people live neutrally, neutral in a very broad sense, it leads us to lack of awareness, to disease, to illness, ultimately premature death. Um, It's estimated that uh, 70% of the disease or more in the United States generally is preventable. That most of the disease we experience in this country are largely related to Diet, exercise, stress management, and weight control, the majority of them. There are some other ones that, you know, have a strong genetic component. So we know and so we're dealing with that with many people. But, again, as we're called to this spirit of life of wholeness and wellness, then we're creating awareness, understanding, transformation, and ultimately wholeness. And also related to, and all of these concepts fit together, I believe, is that we fully underestimate the 1 Corinthians 13 factor, the love factor. And how love in and of itself can bring healing and wholeness to people who are in trouble, who are in disease who are diseased as david the late david hilton used to say and we know that when we compare what love does what love is with attitudes that produce disease and illness they're very opposite ends of the coin and we again as people of faith have the opportunity to give And to share love with people in health ministry generally, and in particular to people with, living with HIV in a way that they may not be getting in any other way or from any other place, not even from their own families. So that our churches have the opportunity to embrace such folks in a way that brings them and draws them to Christ. What do we know? What, what keeps people healthy? We know very definitively, and by the way, a lo- the love factor in particular, love, in addition to uh, many of the negative emotions, now are being do- well documented by medical science, isn't it? So that we know that the negative emotions of anger, resentment, bitterness, hatred, uh, tend to uh, have something to do with people's normal natural cancer cells that are in their body, turning them to, into the... Uh, or, or cells in their body, turning them into cancer cells. So all of this, again, is being documented. We'll come back to that in a minute. We know that there are some very specific things that keep people healthy. Research on the immune system and other studies have shown that factors such as hope, so that we know that people who get sick, if they have hope, if they have faith, If they have a belief, not only in themselves, but in them getting better, they, in fact, get better faster than people that have no hope. We know that religious belief and faith in a higher power keeps people healthy. Meditation and prayer, one of the handouts that you have. Let's jump to that very quickly. Religious practices that positively impact health status. These are things that we do as people of faith all the time. Going to church. uh, The great uh, Chicago educator, Juwanza Kandjufu has said that 95% of the prisoners that he works with in the Cook County system never went to Sunday school. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school like I did, Sunday school is where you learned how to speak. You learned how to present. We had to do those Easter and Christmas programs. And not like the kids today where you could stand up there with your little piece of paper. You had to memorize your part. And you didn't embarrass your mother and father by not knowing and not standing up there with that uh, piece of paper. Um, you learned, um, we learned about um, uh, moral and, and cultural and other issues in Sunday school. So that these are things, if you look at that handout, religious practices that positive impact health and the impact of religion on health, these are things that we as people of faith do on a regular basis. That again is now being documented by medical science. People who pray regularly, people who meditate. The fellowship with other believers. What would happen to people living with HIV? that were brought into that loving fellowship, those fellowship dinners that we all have. Sharing meals with people. Um, One of the major, major gaps in the lives of many people living with HIV, depending on how they have been accepted or rejected by their families, is this whole issue of fellowship. So they're just out there. And depending on their life, orientation, Um, you know, they may be trying to take care of themselves, or they may not be, depending on their support network. So these are things we know that keep people healthy. Touch, love, that's been well documented among children and babies, are critical to people being healthy and staying healthy. All of this, for me, paints a wonderful picture for why the church should be involved in health ministry and in particular ministry to people living with HIV. Because it is the church, if you look at the handout, the roles and functions of religious organizations, it makes us a natural partner in health ministry. And a partner with the, our huge health care system. And, in my estimation, we actually fill many of the gaps that our huge healthcare care system cannot fill. We are still the largest healthcare care system in the world. We spent over fourteen percent of our gross national product on health care over two trillion now over two trillion dollars. We are still also the only dependent and no matter which side of the healthcare care uh, which I said I was going to stop calling it Obamacare because it's derogatory, the Affordable Care Act you land on, we are still the only industrialized nation in the world that does not guarantee health care for all of its citizens. The only one. When I first started my doctoral program in the late 80s, I wrote my first paper on the need for universal health care in 1989, and at that time, it was the United States and South Africa were the only two industrialized nations in the world. We now stand alone as the only country in the world that does not guarantee health care for all of its citizens. And even whatever you thought about the uh, Affordable Care Act, in my estimation, it still didn't go far enough because it still doesn't cover everybody. So, the church has the opportunity to fill some of these gaps. Those of you that work in our system, you know, one we just talked about how expensive it is. We talk it's 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 often an inflexible system. Uh, one of the issues we're having with getting men into the system is that the system appears to be designed more for females than for males. So some of us, some, some of you are trying to get males in. Uh, it's considered to be impersonal. Highly technical, large and confusing. So if in many cultures, you or your family, member have, family members have a hard time with the system, you're not going back. Or you remember, as many African Americans do, issues like Tuskegee. Tuskegee is still with us. It is still with us. It is probably one of the reasons why, A, we have not made as much headway with HIV in the African-American community. Because many African-Americans believe, as with Tuskegee, that the government has something to do with HIV. And that it's, you know, they did the same thing with HIV that they did with, Tuskegee, with the Tuskegee study. It's still with us. The trust factor. So these are all, it's um, um, provider versus patient driven. And again, not for all of you that are working in Christian health ministry and missions. The other issue for and for me that's critical is that it is a disease care versus a health care oriented system. We still target disease. As the reason, I've been trying to get a... Uh, a hey, uh, master's or doctoral, two, stu- two studies, which I guess says I need to do them myself. Two studies I've been trying to get a master's or doctoral student to take on as their thesis or dissertation. The first has to do with teen pregnancy. If you really think a 10, 12, 13-year-old th- really wants to have a baby at that age just because she wants a bigger welfare check, as many of us believe, or many people believe, there's something else psychological going on. So we deal with the symptom of it. We give her birth control. We tell her to use condoms. But we never deal with what's going on in the life of a 10-year-old that makes her think that having a baby is going to give her love. The church can help with that. The medical system can. The other issue for me is the homicide and the suicide issue among young males. Young white males largely kill themselves. So the suicide, when you look at the charts for suicide, young white, white males are off the charts for suicide. The suicide rate has been flat, almost flat, for African Americans for over 100 or more years. In the last 25 years, it has started to inch up, very interestingly. Still nowhere near white males. But when you look at the suicide rate for white males and the homicide rate for black males, white males are killing themselves, black males are killing each other. So the issue really in America is what's going on with our young men that are driving them to kill. <coughs> mm-hmm. I was a missionary residence in uh, Latin America, it's in Prince George's County. hmm I'll walk over so Anyway, we used our missionary skills to really learn about the African American community. Mm-hmm. And I used to be living in Vienna, Virginia, which is outside of Washington, and this was prior to going to mission field. But, you know, basically, I, my attitude was, we'll let them kill each other. Mm-hmm. And it's their own problem. But when right. I got into the community, um, I began to really feel for, it because, I mean, a lot of these guys go to church, mm-hmm. and they're, you know, and I, you know, got to know of the young men, and I was just totally dumbfounded. I didn't know what to do about it, and how to stop it, mm-hmm. or how to intervene. Now, do you have any, have you come up with any strategies, or any ideas, to how to... Yeah, there's a whole, there's actually a whole literature that's growing on uh, dealing with African-American Really, boys, a lot of the literature suggests that it actually starts in, uh, some of those issues start obviously in the home, but also in what happens to them in school, so that black boys are labeled far sooner in school. Um, They are ostracized very early, so that, uh, again, according to Dr. Juwanza Kanjufu, the light goes out for black boys by third grade, in terms of how they're labeled and how they're treated predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly by white female teachers. When you compare that with some of the size of some of the young men, some of the teachers are literally afraid of them in terms of their size. So it's a whole history of things. Uh, Many of them are raised in single-parent homes, so they don't have a father figure in the home. So there's a lot of factors and issues that are going on. Um, But again... The factor for me, when I look at those statistics and when you actually look at them, they're exactly the same. They literally are exactly the same. Homicide, black males. Suicide, white males. Why are young men in the same age group, why are they killing, why is one killing themselves and one killing each other? So again, we're not asking the right questions. The church can help with that, by the way. Yes. Yeah, there's a father, I think his name is Gregory, in uh, Los Angeles, and he was working with Latino Mm gangs there. And he created this thing called Homeboy Ministries. And what he was doing, in essence, was bringing together the different gang members and getting them to work together. Mm -hmm. Now, would you comment on that? Would that work in the African American community? It could, could, you know, I'm not an expert in the whole gang uh, uh, issue. Uh, but we do know that the many young, now boys and girls that join gangs have a lot to do with a belonging issue. So, again, if a gang is where I'm getting my self-worth and, you know, they're patting me on the back even though I'm doing these wrong things, um, I'm getting reinforcement, you know, they love me, they say they love me, um, then, it obviously is going to create an, an opportunity for a young person to bond with a gang versus somewhere else. Again, church can help with that, can it? On, um, on many levels. What I'm trying to get at here, look at uh, what faith communities next handout. I'm rushing here because I, I, uh, I'm from five generations of preachers and pastors. And my grandfathers used to say, don't preach people down in, down in the hell and leave them there. We need to think about, think of ourselves as people of faith, not, and again, this, we're talking specifically here about HIV and AIDS, but I think it really applies to the range of health issues that people face. That there is a place for both people of faith and the church to be not just involved, but actively involved in addressing some of these very, very critical areas. And largely because, simply because of who we are. Who we are as followers of Jesus Christ and also for what the church brings to this whole discussion. So that as we said, the church can fill many gaps that our, health, our larger healthcare systems cannot do. If you turn to, to that last The 30 ideas that your church can do. There are several specific action points throughout this, uh, throughout the longer handout. Uh, There's one, uh, 10 key steps for developing a faith based ministry in HIV and AIDS, um, areas for impact, you know, we talked about that, uh, what faith communities offer, uh, how to start a health ministry, so that there is something that each and every one of us as individuals can do about this HIV issue and then there are specific things that we can lead our churches into doing for that in order to address this issue and for me one of the biggest issues is just simply and it's on this on several of these lists is one just simply getting more educated uh there's a wonderful study guide at the end of this handout called The Christian Responsibility and the HIV HIV and AIDS Pandemic uh, developed from my alma mater, Wheaton College. Um, It's a study guide. And it's there literally as it says for your personal reflection. Some of us need to go back and personally reflect on how we feel about this issue of HIV and AIDS, and more so the people who get it and need to allow the Holy Spirit to cleanse us from hindrances in our lives and in our ways of thinking that would block us from being able to minister to people living with HIV. Remember, in the very early days, people didn't even want to touch people with HIV. Unfortunately, a lot of those were church folks. Um, it's still a very bitter pill. At the CDC, the folks that have been with the epidemic now for the entire time, there are people working at CDC that have literally been working on this epidemic since the beginning. And they talk consistently about the church's response in some churches, which I'm in the process of helping to correct that history, because there were many denominations that did not respond in that way. And as a matter of fact, the flip side of the coin was that, uh, and certainly, and it's probably true in other communities, but in the African American community, uh, even when people were diagnosed, um, it was often those black pastors that they came to and the, and the families, uh, and those pastors themselves, even if their churches didn't, rallied around individuals and their families, uh, particularly those that were church members. Uh, But some of us need to do some serious reflection. How do I feel about people's uh, people living with HIV? And even though I may oppose their lifestyle, um, what can I do? What is my role in helping them to address this issue in their lives? Where do justice and mercy come into play? How does the church bear witness to addressing this particular scourge in relation to HIV, uh, one of my other areas of work is work is working with clergy, and we learned that many clergy are in fact misinformed, not just about HIV but at health in general. Like a lot of doctors, and uh, uh, sorry, any doctors in the room, um, the mo- I'm told that most doctors it may have changed now, but the average doctor doesn't have to take or is not required to take a nutrition course. So helping people to figure out, you know, their dietary needs and all of that. And there have actually been some good studies that have been done when I was working in hypertension. They discovered that one of the league's doctors were telling their clients, you need to lower sodium, but didn't know how to, didn't tell them, couldn't tell them how. So couldn't tell them how to, you know, you need, how, you need to read food labels and consider, you know, all of the sodium you're getting, not just what you pour at the table and what you cook with. So um, And that, you know, uh, one of my great nurse, friend, nurse colleagues uh, that worked with African-American women in West Philly adopted a philosophy that she knew for this particular older black female population that getting them to give up salt pork probably was impossible at that age. But getting them down from a slab of salt pork this big to this big was behavior change. Well, it's the same way with the clergy. As we discovered, many of them are either misinformed or not as well informed about health issues in general. So those of you that are in the profession, that are medical people, may have to work specifically with your pastors and your clergy. And there's a very nice handout on various ways that clergy in particular can be and should be involved in health promotion. I did far more talking. Fifty minutes goes by like crazy. Um, far more talking than what I uh, intended to do. But I hope we have done two things. One is to show that there is, in fact, a great need for the church to be involved in HIV. And there are many levels that we can be involved, uh, as, as is indicated on several of the handouts. And then secondly, that there is a place and a role for us simply because of who we are as people of faith, as people of God, as followers of Jesus Christ to extend the hand of mercy and love even as he did in a non-judgmental way that will in fact draw people to himself and to the church. And then thirdly, that we need to do so from a from a spirit as Jesus did of compassion. The Greek... Uh, interpretation of compassion is not just feeling sorry for somebody. And a lot of us feel sorry for the HIV and AIDS population. But compassion is mercy backed up by action. And so these, you'll find in these handouts and in that 30 ideas list, lots of big ways and small ways that you and your church can become involved in HIV-AIDS ministry. And you've got the last word. Oh, I'm gonna I move over this way, so you can. I'm actually a physician, and I pray with a lot of my patients. Mm. hmm And I've had several patients who are living a homosexual lifestyles mm-hmm. say that I'm the first person to ever pray with them. hmm And mm-hmm. it breaks my heart. hmm totally And them. one because we are, we may assume because of their lifestyle that. They don't either want it or won't accept it or whatever. Mm -hmm. Huge assumption. Mm -hmm. There's another ton of handouts on the other end. So if you have one, if you want to take one to somebody else, feel free to do so. I'll be around, so I'd love to talk with you and hear from you. God bless.